You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Three, two, one. Three, two, one. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Noob is one and one more. I'm Professor David Kirkfrop along with Dr. Esteban. Emeritus Marconi. Yes, and that is who he is and who he will always be until the end of time. And time has no boundaries and neither does music biz. Right. Very excited to be here with you tonight. Unless you're listening to the podcast during the day, then we're excited to be with you during the day, in your head, in your pods, in your buds, in your earphones. Happy to be here. Spooing out to you all about the biz. Etc. cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. We want uh, you to know that, by the way, this was housed on Music Biz. Let's see. This was housed on Brave New Radio. And we do have a guest who will join us shortly. But at the moment, we should uh, give thanks. Do, uh, do you agree with me, Dr. Esteban? Yes. Let's do that. So we're going to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. And who's the new artist you, you mentioned earlier? Uh, they just picked up uh, Zach Brown. And Zach Brown, there's mm-hmm. a place for you to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <laughs> That's right. Hyphen CPA.com when you're ready. And... We want to give thanks to Christine. Boy. They, a wealth manager at the four, F-O-U-R, Forefront Group, Christine, has helped professionals and probably some amateurs from all over the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement. When someone like you is thinking of building, of thinking of building a future, stop. When someone like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, you should yes. go to the Forefront Group and go to Christine Dot. Boy. They at Forefront.com. Please, the last off, oil off for sale. <laughs> we walk all over our own tongues today. Yes, at times we do. But that makes it real. It makes us human. And that's what we are. We are not bots. This that's is the right. Amazon factory run by machines. We are human beings. Speaking of human beings who do things, 
managing your band, seventh edition. Every time we talk, we have inched closer and closer to that becoming a reality. Yes, exactly. We sure think too. Yeah, we a little backstory. We are in a contract phase with mm-hmm. a company who's going, who has offered to actually do this book, give us like a real live book deal, and they sent us a contract. And we made comments. We spoke with an attorney and we have sent our comments back on the contract. So we will see how this negotiation goes. That's correct. Yes. So our guest today is Ed Javaruski. You roll the R or you don't do anything at all. Ed Javaruski. He's a director of tour merchandise for Bravado, which is an arm of your universal music group. And before Bravado. Ed was with Live Nation and Clear Channel. Dr. Esteban, what is Clear Channel today? Clear Channel today is the largest broadcast, I would say, conglomerate probably in the world. Yes. I don't know. We don't know China that well, at least in the country. Yes, and we, uh, we don't know China. But yes, and it eventually became uh, part of Live Nation. It eventually is what it is now, which is iHeart. So Ed part of something that doesn't exist yet still exists anymore. And Ed joins us right now. Uh, Yeah. So why did you choose merch to get into the business? Well, at the time around 1993, 94, I was working for TVT Records running their distribution center right out of their office Mm -hmm. on uh, Fourth Street in New York. And I was introduced to Felix Abatius, who ran merchandise for Roadrunner at Blue Grape Merchandising. And um, someone said, hey, Felix, Ed would be great to help you out with the company because I know you guys are just starting up. So uh, I went and talked to Felix and he hired me to start working, uh, doing tour merch for Sepultura and Typo Negative and Fear Factory and all the, uh, the heavy metal bands that Roadrunner had at the time. Mm-hmm. And then you went from there to... From there, I was there for about, let's see, 94 to 2000, I think, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, then we parted ways. And uh, while I was not working, I um, got to know Scott Eisenberg out of Georgia, and he was doing some stuff for uh, SFX at the time. Mm-hmm. which later became Clear Channel and eventually Live Nation. So Scott knew that I was unemployed and we had met a few times. Um, so he offered me a job and I ended up working for him for about a year. Um, and then 9-11 happened and my wife didn't want me traveling. So I actually went to DeVry and got my degree in computers. Mm-hmm. I uh, graduated in 2005 and I went to see Def Leppard and Brian Adams at the ballpark in Coney Island. And I ran into Uta, who used to work at Blue Grape. And she said, hey, Blue Grape just got bought by Bravado and we could use your help. Come in and meet everybody at Bravado. So uh, it was about two weeks before I graduated from DeVry, went in for an interview and they asked me if I could start immediately. All right. <laughs> I took a couple of weeks off and uh, August 1st, I started uh, working in the tour department at Bravado, uh, which was just an independent company at the time. Right, right. 
Um, so then I started up there and then they were owned by Sanctuary Music for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they were, uh, they were bought by Universal Music, which is still uh, the parent company today. All right. So how do you like being a arm of a huge, huge, huge company? Uh, it, it's great. Um, you know, there's a, it was a big change when Universal came in, you know, with corporate environment. And it was uh, a big adjustment going from a rock and roll, independent rock and roll merch company to uh, working for a huge company, which is also owned by a bigger company, which is they're run by uh, Vivendi Corporation out of Europe. So uh, there was a lot of changes, but it opened up a lot of doors for us with all the universal artists. And uh, obviously the capital was behind it. So we felt a lot more secure in the company. And uh, yeah, it was a, a little bit of adjustment period, but uh, in the end, it all worked out for the best. Mm -hmm. Now with the, uh Partially with the graying of ticket buyers, uh, you, uh, I guess, observe the price of merchandise, each piece going up and being uh, sort of fulfilled by the audience. I mean, they were, they were looking forward to spending a little more money to get a piece of merch because they could afford it. I think the quality also evolved and got better, even though you were paying a lot more for the shirt. You know, the customers got had a greater demand for quality. And I think we mm -hmm. responded to that and made better quality products. So if you're paying $35, $40, for a T-shirt, you know, you don't want to wear it once or twice and have it shrink and have to throw it out. So, yeah. you know, we focus a lot on quality and uh a lot of feedback from our artists, you know, looking at stuff before we release it to the concerts and the marketplace uh, to make sure it is a high quality product. So successful people, let's say 40 plus age group, you think they would buy more t-shirts that sold for 35 bucks than they would for $15? Uh, I, I think, I think that definitely would buy it because they know it's going to last longer nowadays. You know, mm -hmm. I remember going to a show and getting a shirt and you might wear it a couple of times and then it, it turned into something you couldn't wear anymore. So, you know, right. that, you know, they'll buy that main tour shirt and see that it's a good shirt. And then they might buy a hoodie or a hat or something because it's all, you know, better quality stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I was trying to get at is the, the deeper the pockets, the more interest they would be into a better product than, uh, than actually just a, a product that actually might work just as well. Yeah, I work with some of our, uh, I work with, work with most of our heritage acts like the Rolling Stones and Elton John yeah. and who, and right. you know, those, those, those fans don't worry about spending money on it. They'll put it on the credit card and they'll spend 150, $135, you know, with, with, yeah. without, without even blinking. So right. it's uh, right. Now, so one it, time I, I read, I don't know if, if Dell said it or whom, but I, uh, I read one time, and I'm a believer of it, that too many choices is uh, detrimental. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you have so much stuff to look at, everybody in the industry, we refer to it as the deer in the headlight syndrome. When you mm -hmm. have everybody waiting in line and then finally get up to the counter, they just stand there and they're overwhelmed by choices. Um, right. 
speaking of Dell and Epic Rights, uh, before KISS started their uh, end of the road tour last year, um, Dell had told me that Gene Simmons actually said, I want like 15 items so people can walk up, get what they want and get out of the way so people, the next people in line can spend their money. And for Gene Simmons to say that, right. I, I think that's saying something. Uh, <laughs> responding to that something that we've tried to pass on to our artists for years it's like you know if we have 10 or 15 great items you don't need 40 items but mm-hmm. it's going to mm-hmm. slow down everybody and make long lines and you see the long lines and the people are not going to want to wait so you could right. actually that could actually lose sales yeah i've done that with my kids that i just didn't want to wait in line said, yeah yeah too long yeah Different products for female acts than male acts? Um, absolutely. Um, you know, we've seen that a lot last year alone with Billie Eilish, um, Ariana Grande. They're much more conscious to have more like fashion oriented items for the girls and, you know, like a slim fit shirt for even for the her fans or for the, their fans. Um so I think it definitely, you know, if we have a successful female artist, uh, Billy, she tries to emulate what she wears on stage and most of her merch um, so that she, her fans can really relate with her and, you know, emulate what she's wearing on stage as well. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. absolutely. All right. So most of the clothing made in America or made in uh, Asia? Uh, most of our most of our shirts, we get like our blank shirts from Central America, and then we bring them into the States, and then we'll print them here in the States. Uh, but for like custom items, we do a lot of custom jackets and sweatshirts. We'll do those overseas just for the price difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but the majority of stuff is, is done uh, domestically, yeah. Do you have any artists who say, uh, state flat out, make these in America? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The last... The last maybe five years or so, we had artists who are, you know, really wanted to know where stuff was coming from and, you know, concentrate on American made products and, you know, even, uh, you know, the uh, environmentally conscious stuff that we're doing with uh, certain recycled blanks and, you know, using stuff that's already been recycled. So we get some requests for like from that for our artists uh, that's a bit challenging just because of the volume that we need sometimes because it's not always readily available in the huge quantities that we need but you know we're going to do one or two items that we could say sure we can do 100 percent organic material or whatever but that has definitely come up in the last few years as well uh, i remember reading keith richards said i used to get royalty statements about selling records now I get how many tons of cotton that we uh, buy the stone because from what I understood, they, they, the stones tried to own as much down the, the uh, you know, down the trail as they could to get right down to the actual cotton plant, I guess. Well, I didn't, I didn't hear that. Uh, that wasn't the case since I've been working with them the last, uh, the last, well, I, I started managing their tour last year when they went on the road, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure when that was, but uh, yeah, this is, I'm going back at least 10 years. Yeah. It no. might've been, might've been with their previous company who was handling their touring. All right. So what's the, um, what's a good barometer for uh, per head sales on a, uh, you know, on a, on a, let's say a big tour. 
Hey, you know what? It, it used to be if we were doing five or six bucks a head, we were really happy. But in the last maybe three or four or five years, we've had such huge artists just exploding like Ariana Grande and more recently Billie Eilish, even our heritage acts like the Stones. And now you're up, you're up if they don't do under over $10 a head, we're, we're concerned. So yeah. We might have Ariana or Billie Eilish doing more than that, you know, even mm -hmm. even the Stones in their stadiums, they were doing those kind of numbers to 40, 50,000 people a night. So it's like right. people are not afraid to spend the money. All right. And Kiss fans, same thing. Same thing. The end of the road tour was one of the most successful tours they've ever done. Dell was extremely happy because that was the first tour that we did after uh Bravado had acquired Epic Rights and uh, mm -hmm. the, the numbers were just through the roof. And I think some of that had to do with them having a, a limited product line like we talked about. It was just made the opportunity for more people to buy stuff while they're at the show and not get discouraged by long lines and spend that money. So our heads have definitely gone up. Well, prior to, right. prior to COVID because we don't know what it's going to be like post COVID right. yet. Of course. Can you guys real quick, um, take, wait, can you take a step back? Because both of you guys have, have, have said the name Dell, but I bet a lot of our listeners don't know who you're talking about. Can you explain who Dell Ferrano is and kind of get into what Epic Rights was and why Bravado made that purchase? Sure. Well, Del Ferrano, Del Ferrano is one of the leaders in the industry. He goes all the way back to uh, Winterland merchandising with Bill Graham, which is really like the first merchandising company ever established. Uh, I believe he went on to uh, Signatures Network after that. Um, I haven't heard his name around for a long time, but I, I've worked with him with other bands that we were touring with, but um, I'm not sure, Steve, if you have any more of his older background. Uh, yeah, that's what I recall. Yeah, um, but then I think it was at the beginning of last year, um, they were acquired by Bravado. Um, they handled Kiss and Def Leppard. They, uh, they had Aerosmith at the time, which we ended up absorbing onto the Bravado side. Um, Motley Crue, Poison. Um, that's just the recent ones that I'm aware of, but they've mm -hmm. had a huge roster of artists over the years. Um, and he's still running, even though we've acquired them, Epic still functions under the Epic Rights name and Dell still takes care of all of those artists, the A&R with those artists and stuff like that. So even though we've acquired them, they're still kind of functioning a little bit independently, I guess you'd say. Yeah. But they brought a lot of their uh, major artists over to our roster. And we were able to use all of our assets with, you know, the volume that we were doing. We were able to get better pricing on shirts and stuff just because of the sheer volume that we do with all of our printers and suppliers. We, Dave, we should probably uh, define per head gross, too, because we we were throwing that around. Sure. That, that's that's like how we how we gauge how much merchandise to purchase in advance for these shows is. If you have 10,000 people and at the end of the night, you come out with $50,000 in merch sales, that comes out to each person spent $5. So that would be $5 per head. That's how we calculate right. total merch right. divided by the number of tickets sold. So, you know, right. we'll plug in our projections on the upcoming shows and 
average the per head for each town. And, you know, by now we know which markets are stronger. And, you know, if you go into Texas, they like to spend money in Texas and it varies. But like I said, after having years and years of sales data, we can plan accordingly based on those per heads in the individual markets. Mm -hmm. Now, I just one more question was um, the actual procedure. There's a Heritage Act going out on tour, let's say, of the of the quality of the eagles and the stones and whatever. Do you bid for the tour still? Um, at, at this point, we only deal with artists who are under contract to us. Um, so uh, might do it for an album cycle or a contract by year or depends on the individual contract with the artist. So there's really not a lot of bidding. The only time bidding would come up is if their deal expires with us and they're shopping around to some other merch companies. And at mm -hmm. that point, it's just who's going to offer them the most money. So right. we might do a deal with for just tour merchandise where they might have their e-commerce and retail merch. They might be doing it themselves or or we could offer them a full package deal where we'll take care of their e-com store, their retail distribution, and all of their tour merchandise as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So does Bravado own any of the kiosks in the malls? We do not own any of them. We have a, a lot of, a lot of uh, in the malls, we basically have Hot Topic and um, for the smaller stores, but they have a huge presence in Kohl's and um, Target, um, Walmart. Mm -hmm. Uh, a few other ones, and I know there's some other smaller shops like PacSun out on the West Coast, um, but we don't own any individual retail locations. Uh, we did just open the Rolling Stone store in London, uh, mm -hmm. the flagship Rolling Stone store. We can only buy certain specific merchandise for that store in uh, Carnaby Street in London, so that just opened mm -hmm. amid the pandemic. They even went ahead and we reopened that a couple of months ago. All right. Right. What's the uh, most unique or the cleverest piece of merch you remember? I'd say the one that surprised us the most would be a, a few years ago, we did some light up cat ears for Ariana Grande and they were mm -hmm. actually, uh, they were controlled by a uh, console out by the lighting desk. So you bought these light up cat ears and they were synced with the music and we're like, oh, people are never going to spend whatever. I think it might have been $40. Like people are never going to spend $40 on that. And we ended up having to reorder them after the first show because they were just buying them like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so and then that's translated now over to all the K-pop bands like uh, BTS. So we don't do BTS, but we do Blackpink. And uh, mm -hmm. they had they had a similar item. It was just a, it wasn't even well, actually they were synced, but it was just a light that you held. And now they're spending like 50 or $60 on those. So it's uh, kind of surprising, you know, you, I mean, you still sell your tour shirt, but then you do a couple of hundred thousand dollars just in lights. Right. So uh, is the markup, uh, well, I have two more questions and I'll turn it over to Dave too. Uh, is the markup basically 60, 40, uh, roughly about a 40% markup? Uh, well, you mean for what we sell at the concerts? Yeah, after distribution. That, that varies on the individual item and what the cost is. And, you know, everybody's like, how can it be so expensive? We can get T-shirts for four bucks. It's like, well, yeah, by the time you pay for your trucking and your shipping and your printing yeah. and your road guys and the tax and taxes included when you buy all your shirts right at the concert. So we got to pay a tax on it. 
we got to pay our road staff. We've got to pay the accountants in the office and the band has to get their share and mm-hmm. the merch company has to get their share and the manager has to get their share. So uh, there, I can't say that there's one real markup number that I could give you. Like it varies on the, on the individual item and uh, you know how much we're going to sell mm-hmm. it for. Yeah. So there's definitely not one set markup number. All right. Okay, my, my last thought right now is uh, on a $30 t-shirt, what does the artist in general walk away with? Yeah, that, that's, that's, I, I don't have that information anymore. It used to be way back in the day, it was like they would cut a 30% deal with us or something at Blue right. Grape. But when I started working for the bigger company and they have an accounting department and a legal department and an artist manager department, it's, I have no idea what the royalties are going to the bands. Mm-hmm. I was always told, please keep our costs down on shipping because mm-hmm. that's really the only place we can cut costs is like not overnighting 50 boxes of shirts. So, yeah. um, you know, getting shirts at, at wholesale, we have a great distributors that we use and our printers all pr- basically have a pricing structure. So we really can't change any of that. So our costs out on the road is the only place where we, we can really save any kind of money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right okay so why don't we talk about take like a couple steps back what would you say is the actual definition of merch the actual definition of merch i i think it's 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 not just going to buy a shirt i, I think it's going to buy something that represents one of your favorite artists and part of your lifestyle, right? It's not just, you know, you're going to put something on you. It doesn't just represent the band. It represents you because you're wearing that image or a, say, a phrase or something. And so I think it's it's much more than just going out and buying a sweater and spending $30 on a sweater. This is something that you're not afraid to express that you like the Rolling Stones and you don't mind having that big tongue on you because it's part of, it's ingrained in, in your fabric. So I think merch is, you know, it, it, it represents the artist and it represents your relationship with that artist. Earlier, you, you used the term uh, A&R for merch. And I think everybody thinks in general when they hear A&R, oh, I'm gonna sign artists to a label. But A&R is much, much wider than that. And you're going to give another example right now as to what you mean by A&R for merch. Well, actually, it was always A&R. We always had an A&R guy who talked to the bands and went out and looked at the bands and talked to the managers. But in the last four or five years, we don't call them A&R in merch anymore. They're now called brand managers because they're hmm. responsible for the entire brand, which kind of makes sense, right? So it's it's not really A and R anymore at Bravado. It's we have brand management now, and it's they'll go to the artist and sell them and say, "Look, we can do this for your touring shirts. We can do this for your ecom shirts. We can do this kind of shirt for for retail." Because it's not you know if we put we have a tour out, we don't necessarily put that same shirt in Kohl's. You know they might take that tour shirt and wash it or embellish it or embroider it or put glitter on it just so that's different than what you can get at the show. So it's a lot more, like I said, brand management and putting a different piece in retail, a different piece in e-com and have a different thing available for uh, 
for the tour. So it's really not just artists and repertoire anymore like it was with the record label. It kind of transcended from the record labels over to merch in the beginning. But now it's just such a wider scope where all the merch is ending up that it's definitely more brand management now. So do you have people, the brand managers, are they doing some of the things that other A&R people are doing, maybe just looking at SoundCloud and looking at names of artists and looking at big hits and saying, hmm, that person might make a lot of sense. I don't know if they're signed to anybody. I don't really care about audio. I don't care about agent. I'm, I'm just thinking, wow, I bet that person could sell a lot of merch. Do you have that? Is that Are those situations? Sure. Most of that, that's part of being a brand manager now is, is still – having that uh, A&R rep in you, right? And going out and trying to discover somebody that nobody knows about yet or somebody that's on the up and coming and know that they're going to be big and they're going to be hot and we can sell a lot of their shirts. Absolutely. And as the director of tour merchandise, so we, we've talked about some like kind of overall things, but what would you, what, what are your specific responsibilities in your position? Well, it's myself and I have three other people who manage the all of our artists. So I, I deal with mainly the heritage acts. We have another gentleman who handles more of the contemporary acts like the Ariana Grandes and the Billie Eilish and The Weeknd. And then we have two other junior tour managers who will take care of our smaller bands, I guess you would call them. Um, so I would just, you know, hear from our brand managers and say, oh, we have a tour coming up for artist X. So I would have to figure out you know, who is, who's, has what tours going on at that, at the moment and figure out who is best suited to manage that artist, deal with that, deal with our suppliers, deal with our production people. So it's basically managing, getting all the stuff done for all the tours that we have, not just the ones that I'm working on. Because I think, for example, you have Guns N' Roses on the Bravado roster. I would assume they're going to sell quite a bit of merch on, on a big tour. So something like that, you hear from uh, whether it's uh, UTA or you hear from their manager, you hear from somebody, okay, we're going to go, we're going to do a two-year Guns N' Roses tour. Upon hearing that, what what is your strategy? What, what do you do from there to the time that they do their first show? What are some of the things you do? Well, we, we have to add to that. To add to that, first, it was just announced the weekend's doing the Super Bowl. So are you guys already on it? Um, well, I'll address that one first. Um, that's, that'll be a lot of merchandise outside. Uh, when our artists perform at the Super Bowl, we don't usually sell merchandise at the Super Bowl, um, but they might do events around it and design some merch to sell online associated with it. But it's the, the super, we've had artists uh, on the Super Bowl before, and it, it's not, they're not huge merchandise events for us because it's really about the two teams playing and the Super Bowl merchandise mm -hmm. and the NFL merchandise. Um, so we never, so we see, we see residual sales after the fact from all the people who've never seen the weekend or didn't know who the weekend were. So there'll be a big online push, just like the same. He'll, he'll do a lot of streams and maybe sell some CDs after the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, going back to Guns N' Roses, when we found out they were doing their reunion tour back in 2016, I was a part of that. Um, so at that point, their managers would work with our brand managers and our creative department and start coming up with concepts. I mean, luckily, that was a reunion tour and they wanted to use all the old classic artwork, which we actually, Bravado, did all the original merchandise for them back 
when they first started touring or they had access to all of those assets. So we were able to, we actually recreated the first shirt that they ever made in, in 1987. So that was actually sold on that tour. So at that point, the brand managers and the creative team will come up with ideas. And um, I've actually been working with the band's for a long time also. So I worked closely with the creative department on, you know, they would ask me what I thought of stuff and if this would work and that would work. And like I said, luckily having a long history with the band, they listened to me and, you know, aside from what just they wanted, you know, they might listen to a couple of suggestions that I had. So we knew it was gonna be successful. So at that point, we just start figuring out what were our initial orders were gonna be, what custom leather jackets we were gonna have made overseas. Luckily we had time on this because they did let us know ahead of time. So we were able to do a lot of custom leather jackets, like I said, and some custom sweatshirts and a lot of stuff we were able to do overseas. Um, but then it's just, you know, trying to figure out what that per head would be, um, you know, and then they did the first show at the Troubadour. We did a couple of shirts for that because it was only a few people. But then the next weekend or uh, the following weekend after that, they played two nights at the brand new T-Mobile Arena. And I think we did over $30 a head <laughs> wow. over two nights. So <clears throat> then they had, I think the, the tour kicked off a few days after that. So we knew they weren't going to do $30 a head for the rest of that tour because there was people who flew in from all over the world for that first arena show in Vegas. So uh, we adjusted accordingly and went into the tour and um, you know the numbers level off. And from there you react, we print for the first couple of shows and on just the standard t-shirts and stuff like that. Um, and then we can react after a couple of shows with the sales data and print more of what we need to get through the rest of the tour. And, you know, we did change it because they did several legs of that tour for the next two or three years. I think it was three years. So we did modify the product line. Every time they would go to Europe, we would change or if they went to Japan, we would change it and send the artwork over to our partners in Japan. So that was a, a long, great process with that Guns N' Roses tour. So that was a good example. Now you have on your roster, uh, there's an artist, Freddie Mercury, for example, who passed away many years ago. What, what are you doing with the Freddie Mercury? Is that retail at that point? Uh, that's all retail. I'm not sure if any of that's available. It might be available online as also, but I know it's definitely in Kohl's. So that's like a strictly a retail business also. Yeah. Mm. And, and Amy Winehouse, same thing. Um, is the is Bravado dealing with the estate or a, a manager, a, like an artist manager of the estate? And there's a merch plan around that deceased artist? Yeah. I mean, that that the first um, instance I had of that was when we were just getting ready to start printing for Michael Jackson's tour. Because we were going to do the This Is It tour. We were a couple of days away from starting production when he passed away. So... Um, after that, our brand managers started working with the, with the estate and we did all the Michael Jackson stuff. And then we actually were involved with doing all the merchandise for the, uh, Cirque du Soleil show in Vegas that they did for Michael Jackson. Um, mm -hmm. I think there might be a couple of the artists that we deal with. We just deal with the estates, um, you know, once, if the artist had passed away, yeah. All right, let's do another, uh, thing here um we'll, we'll look at merch from some different angles because you've been talking about it from basically the superstar level because bravado is dealing with we mentioned guns and roses you just mentioned michael jackson ariana grande but let's go back because a lot of people listening 
are on the DIY end. Either they're working with new bands or they're in a brand new band. From the DIY perspective, just starting out, at what point is a band thinking about merch? At what point is it too soon? At what point do they maybe make that first bulk purchase of 25 shirts or do they do pre-orders and order on demand? Talk, go through some of the steps of what you would recommend to the, those brand new bands coming out. Well, I think, like you said, it's it's, it's uh, DIY is is definitely the way to go because it's going to cost a lot of money to hire somebody to do all your artwork and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that the key that would be to to use their social media accounts and start putting ideas up in front of their fans on social media and see what they like and see what they respond to. Start out simple. Um, <clears throat> Definitely simple designs, you know, start off with a one color shirt, a white shirt with your logo and go from there because those are cheaper to print, you know, um, pre-ordering would be ideal if you can come up with a great concept that you've got some good feedback from online already from your fan base and say, okay, so we, we have 50 people who like that shirt, we can print 100 and we'll be good to go and, you know, you won't pay you know, the more, the more you print, the cheaper it is, you know, you don't want to print a thousand shirts, but instead of printing 25 shirts, you know, if you get lucky enough that something really strikes a chord with your fans and say, oh, great, we can print 144 of those and save a ton of money on them and have them, you know? So I think baby steps is definitely the way to go, you know, because it'll be a while before you have a merch company come chasing after you, but the smarter you can be about it and listen to your fans and take baby steps and then you'll grow from there. You mentioned two color, you know, one color, two color, three color, four color shirts. Can you kind of explain what that is? I know one color is the cheapest, but what is the difference between a one color shirt and a four color shirt? Well, it's, it's just the, the, the more, the, um, the, the, most of the printers will charge you by colors. If you do a two color design, it's just a, a, a flash undercoat and a white color, white or black or whatever. And then as you get more complex artwork, they have to separate it out into different colors and you need a bigger printer machine. Or if you're doing it by hand, then it's going to take you twice as long to do colors. It'll two colors will take you three times to do longer to do three colors if you're doing it by hand. But like I said, you know, we go up to 14 colors on some of our photorealistic shirts or really complex designs. So it's better to start off small and go up from there. Is one color considered black and white? Or yeah, like a white white print on a black shirt would be one color, yeah. Okay, what about black print on a white shirt? Same, Same thing? thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I wasn't trying to be facetious. I oh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. actually curious, okay. So if I added a second color, it would be black and white and red or something, or is red considered a higher end color that, that it's always part I mean, of you, you might get the same price for up to four colors. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. It's been a long time since I dealt with simple designs like that. But mm -hmm. again, if you're doing it by hand, you know, they're going to definitely, because they still do a lot of like screen, silk screening by hand if, if, in kids' garages and stuff for, uh, for smaller bands and stuff. So obviously, if you're going to add more colors, it'll cost you a little bit more in the beginning. Okay. And then once you start getting a little bit bigger, and now I'm sort of that mid-tier band and I'm playing 200 to 500 seat rooms and I'm actually doing 15 date, 25 date tours, you know, taking a couple of weeks off and doing that again. Um, how is it different for that type of band? Again, comparing it to what either DIY or superstar, is there any difference? Um, well, 
I'm not sure if there's any difference, but at, when you're at that point, if normally if, if you're getting up to that level where you're playing to 600, 500 to 1,000 people, you're probably opening up for somebody else. And a lot of times we might hear about a young upcoming band who's opening for one of our artists. And then at that point, we might go ap approach them and say, hey, we can print some shirts for you because we also do that. We have like a uh, division that does supply merchandise where we'll just print sh shirts for a band and tour and not, not manage it for the band. So um, I'm not sure if that's what you were leaning towards, but that that's another way that we start getting some of our bands is through uh, opening bands for playing with our artists. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in that case, it's, it's not a contract. It's, it's, it's a one-off basically, you know, you're, you're in that case, you are just like cafe press to them. Correct. Only, you know, your bravado and you're doing other things. What do you, I mean, we already talked about number of designs to offer and the going smorgasbord versus really simple. At what point do you think can an artist open that up and have shirts and hoodies and sweatpants and mugs and all that stuff? Where, where is there, is it by gut? Is it you have analytics and programs that kind of, Talk about that. It, it comes down to how many tickets you're selling. You know, if, if you're playing a, a thousand seat room and you're only selling 400 tickets, you know, you're not, you're not putting bodies in the room to make the purchases. So, I mean, once the, once you start getting those ticket counts and you're selling tickets, you're selling a thousand tickets a night, 1500 tickets a night, then, you know, you can expand because you're going to have, you're going to have a lot more fans coming and they're going to want more than just a black t-shirt. So then you can open it up and you can start testing products, make a make a hundred coffee mugs and see if you sell through them. And, you know, you can start adding products and seeing how it goes from there. And we've talked a lot about cost per head, but you also look at actually uh, 1,500 tickets sold, um, number of people who bought. Do you look at that kind of thing as well? The percentage of actually human beings who make a purchase or is it strictly per head? Um, it's... In the last few years, um, there's a great company called At Venue who developed um, merchandise software that we use that tracks all our sales and does the settlements with the building. So we figure out how many shirts we sold and that will tell us actually how many people bought. Uh, we used all of their uh, cash register point of sale terminals on the Rolling Stones tour and we could track sales by each individual location and know which shirts were selling at each of those stands. So there is so much more data available now than there was back in the old days where you can know, you know, what time people are coming in, even though they open the gates at three in the afternoon, you know, at seven o'clock to eight o'clock before the band goes on at nine, that seven to seven o'clock to eight thirty is going to be your busiest time. And it's really changed and made it a lot easier for us to do plan on staffing for the stadiums and stuff like that. And that also will trickle down to the smaller venues as well and let you know how many people are actually buying and each transaction and how much they're spending on each transaction. So there's a lot more data available now than even five, 10 years ago. Uh, I, I think I asked you this during the panel, but this is a different audience now. Does the uh, uh, opening act need uh, permission from the headliner to sell merch? At the um, they're, they're not, they never really have to ask for permission. They're allowed to sell, but we will 
definitely limit them to what they can use on, on a smaller scale. It's it's more of a space issue. You know, if we're selling 10 items right. in a club, we might let the opening band sell two or three shirts and a CD or whatever. But as we get to the bigger tours, even though you're in an arena, still a space issue, but you don't want to give away all of our prime selling space to the support act. So you might limit them to five five items or five plus two or, you know, two miscellaneous items. Mm-hmm. So there's no, no permission that they have to ask. It's assumed that they're going to bring merch with them. So the only thing that they have to do is they usually on the, once you get to the theaters and arenas, they would have to price match what we're selling our stuff for. Ah. Uh, but in the clubs, it might not be as strict, you know, because all the bands playing the clubs are out there struggling and most of them use their t-shirt money for, for gas, you know, yeah, and pay for right, their sure. hotel or their shower room. So it's not as strict on the club and smaller venue level. But right. like, once you get to the established bigger venues, then they have to price match. And if you're selling a hat, we're selling a hat, it's got to be the same price. And that's just like an industry standard and has been for years. Mm-hmm. Now, does the uh, most of the contracts in those arena shows uh, yeah, use the arena's concessionaires? Yes. Yeah. Once, once you get to that level with the, even some clubs, but once you get to theaters and small, small arenas, large arena stadiums, they provide the whole vending crew and that comes out of their commission, what, what they get paid out of our merch. Mm-hmm. To be fair, right. anywhere from 20 to 30%, the venues will get paid. So who, you, you mentioned a minute ago about there's, there's going to be an arena show and the opening band might get two, two or three slots of merchandise. Who's having the negotiation with that? Is that manager with manager? Is that agent with agent? Are they talking specifically with bravado? Who's talking to whom there? That would be the booking agents talking, but the, the booking agent will find out from the manager and the manager doesn't know. They'll come to me and say, hey, we're going out with this band and they're opening for us, how many shirts you think we should give them? And I'll, I'll tell them, you know, knowing, knowing the tour and the routing and what venues they're playing. And then I'll come back and say, oh, they can have three plus two or they can have five plus two, or it depends on the the, the level that the artist is at. The, the booking agents might be friends and they say, hey, you know, they asked us if they could have an extra couple of pieces, you know, and so some of that come happens as well, you know, and. If, you know, even if I have a relationship with them, you know, I might go back to the manager and say, hey, I know this guy's really well. They want to add another hoodie tonight or something like that. You know, so it's not all it's not all cut and, you know, cutthroat. It's it's about letting them be able to display their merch to their fans as well. It's relationship driven and everybody understands everybody's trying to, you know, I don't want to say make up like we're all poor people, but, you know, they're, everybody's trying to succeed and get to the next level. And so you guys all understand that. So, so as, as you say that, I'm, I'm wondering what, it, and, and this is such a broad based question. I don't know how you will answer it, but what do you know that we don't know? You know, somebody in your position, what, what do you think are some of the things that, that we would never even think to ask or think to even think about yet? For example, you must know every, the merch, the concessionary for every arena in America or something like that. What, what are some of the things like that that you probably know that you might think is nerd of you to know, but, but it's, it's really good. And that's what makes you, you and successful doing that. 
I think that the thing that would surprise the amount of people, everyone who's not familiar with it, is just how many layers are involved with the entire process. Once you get to a certain level, I mean, you know, once you get to in the clubs and stuff, it's, you know, it's print shirts, bring your shirts, sell your shirts. But, you know, when you get into dealing with these large artists, it's, you know, we were dealing with Elton John's office for almost a year before the Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour started and, you know, we saw concepts of what his stage was going to be look like and what the color patterns were going to be so that it all tied together. And we'd be, I'd have something on my desk and then I'd FedEx it to England. And the next day, that thing that I was holding was in Elton John's hands. You know, it's that kind of stuff is just like, it kind of blows my mind. And then six months later, I see a truck full of it and we're selling it and it's out in front of the fans. Uh, the biggest thing for me is, you know, going to that first show for any of our artists and just waiting for the doors to open. And after all the work that myself and my whole team and the road guys and everybody who was involved, the printers and the FedEx guys, you know, when you get to see everything all displayed and the customers come in and you just see their faces light up because this is what they've been waiting for. They bought this ticket six months ago and now they're here and they can go get whatever they want and, you know, that's really, uh, really fulfilling. Is merch ever considered an afterthought? For example, in a movie, music is the very last thing that goes into the movie. They, they cast it, they write it, they film it, and then they see what budget we have left over. And then they'll, you know, try and get a song or two in there. For example, it's the very last thing. Is merch one of the last things or no merch is, and maybe you already kind of explained this merch is there sort of from the beginning, they understand the importance of merch and it's sort of parallel to the entire uh, plan of the tour and production, because first of all, they know it's so much revenue and maybe they understand the time that needs to go into, to create source manufacture and ship. Well, you would, you would think that would be the case, but um, some, some of our artists, it is a hundred percent what you just said. Or maybe some of our younger artists, they, they maybe don't see the, they're not that familiar with the process. I'm not sure what it is, but it does, a lot of artists do tend to leave it to the end and not give us a ton of time, which really hurts them in the end because we can't fully develop stuff to the, the way that we'd like to. And we kind of rush to get stuff out there. So that's always baffled me how it'll be a week before a tour and we still don't have an approved product line, but mm -hmm. you know, it might be that there are, in recording or they're out doing something else or they're already in pre-production and they're working on video for the show or you know there's a lot of stuff that they have going on as well and a lot of the bands aren't in the position to have someone in their office like an Elton John who has a merchandising person in their office who deals directly with Elton so if we need something from Elton we go to the girl in the office and she'll relay it to directly to Elton or to David Furnish and it's, it's great when they have that person that we can deal with directly, but a lot of them don't always have that. We usually teach that the merch advance uh, is one of the few advances in this business that has to be paid back if you don't play in front of X amount of people that you agreed upon. Is that still part of the advance? I, I don't know that that's still... Um, part of the deals that are being worked out now. I, I'm, I'm sure there still are advances. Um, I'm not directly involved with those contracts anymore, like I said, but I don't think it's, you know, like 
it used to be the record companies would give the artists huge advances for records. I mean, I, I think those days are pretty much over. Right. Um, I don't know that there are huge merge payouts for for new bands. I'm sure our bigger artists absolutely will get advances, but uh, I doubt that they're ever going to go back to any of our large artists and say, you, <coughs> um, you owe me this kind of money. I think they really keep it in check, you know, as to how much they're going to give out or... Again, I'm not exactly sure how that works nowadays. Right. Because, see, obviously, the heritage artist doesn't want to use their own money to support a tour. They're going to try to get it every place they can. Right. That was a good question, Marconi. I had that same question. Did you really? Yeah, it makes me almost as great as you. <laughs> yes. So we're, we're actually, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, my final question is about, could you kind of explain the difference in selling to the consumer in be from, um, from let's say a club to an arena, to a stadium, to a festival, and then retail? Wow. Well, basically it's really all the same. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it just gets bigger. You know, you wanna have something when the fans walk into club, arena, stadium, or then even retail, they want to have something that's going to catch their eye or something that's going to represent you. And it's how you want your fans to be representative too. We really didn't talk about that. You know, the, when the artist is designing stuff that that's how they want their fans to, to be seen, even though it's just, it's their merch, they got to think about how, how they want their fans to look too. So I think it's, it, it just really gravitates to bigger and bigger and bigger, kind of all the same, but just on a bigger scale. And retail, do they want something exclusive? Like, will Hot Topic want specifically just this for Hot Topic? You can't get it anywhere else. Is that yeah, demand? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We'll do a Hot Topic exclusive or a Coles exclusive. Um, I'm, again, I'm not that familiar with retail, but I know that they do exclusives for most of those chains. I know you said you're not familiar with retail. What are some of the top chains that you know of that do sell merch? You just mentioned two. Um, like I said, we do Kohl's, we do Target, Walmart. Um, uh, let's see who else. Hot Topic is still great. I mean, it, it used to be uh, Spencer Gifts back in the day, right? I don't think they, they sell too many shirts nowadays. Uh, Urban Outfitters, I know we deal with them. They, they do a lot of business. Uh, I mentioned PacSun. Uh, those are most of the names that I'm familiar with uh, just from being in the office around the retail team. Right, okay. And then... Um Final thing, going back to the, the whole festival thing. Uh, in festivals, artists generally don't, even if they're a bigger artist, they don't have as many slots available to sell merch as they would if they were headlining the tour. Is that correct? Um, a lot of the, the festivals, they'll let the bands set up their own tents. So they'll have one tent where they'll sell all of the band's merch. And some of the festivals now, they'll let the bands set up like in the festival area, not maybe, like, maybe, not maybe the main concert area, but they'll set up a festival area and the bands can go in and sell whatever they want in their own little tent. So I know yeah. that had that um, with the Knot Fest, with Slipknot, working with that festival for years, they were always really accommodating to the bands where they would sell two shirts at the Knot Fest tents and then the bands could have their own tents set up all day until the main stage started at six in the afternoon or something. So that's another way that they can do it. Mm -hmm. We had you on a panel uh, a, a week ago and we brought that up, but we should let people know that we did Music Biz 101 and More Live 2020. You should look that up because Ed was a guest 
on that. And one topic we talked talked about was the fees that venues charge or or take off uh, from the sale of merch. And one thing we didn't bring up was festivals. I'm assuming festivals would do the same thing if you're playing Coachella. Coachella, as an example, is taking a, a cut of merch sales too. Yeah, because again, you know, you'd you'd show up at the merch tent at Coachella in the morning and drop your stuff off, and they would hang it up and display it and sell it all day. So, for their services and them providing the tents and the lights and the staff and everything, you maybe give them twenty or twenty-five or thirty percent. I'm not sure what it is, uh, and they'll take care of all the concessions at the end of the day. They'll come back and count what merch you have left and they'll pay you for the difference. So you, you basically just drop it off for them and they get their venue cut of whatever that. Marconi, did you have anything else? Uh, presently, no. I believe we are out of time anyway. And I think we pretty much got to all of the questions that actually really works out wonderfully. Ed, you've been a tremendous. Mm -hmm. When we say your last name, Javaruski, do you like it? If we roll the R, that's fine. That is particularly um, a, a respectful thing for us to do, and it makes you feel powerful. That's absolutely fine. I'm just happy that someone's saying my name. <laughs> there we go. And that you're, you can still hear it said. So that's, that's great. Right. So, Ed Javaruski, thank you very much for appearing on Music Yeah, thanks a lot. Dr. Stabon, thank you, Dr. Stabon, for appearing on Music Biz 101. Well, and also to you, my esteemed colleague. Yes, and at the end of every show, we do not say hello. Ed, do you know what we say at the end of every show? Sure. Saying? We say adios. I've traveled way too far to lose myself. I've been through hell and back. I'm back. I battle tainted minds, misconceptions of my kind. Leave them guessing all the time. Who I am, who I am. Soldiers, the smile like you have, baby, of the monster. What they 